0: And God, we ask, would your Holy Spirit come and shine the light of Christ on us that we might see him and know him and hear him. God, with all of our hearts, this is our desire, to see, know, and to love Jesus. So we commit ourselves to you, O God, and pray this in his name, amen. Please be seated. So in the summer of 1989, I went on a mission trip to Haiti with my youth group. And at the time, I was your very typical suburban teenager in the 80s. I was concerned primarily with boys, with my clothes and hanging out with my friends and how I could get my hair to attain that maximum height that was so desirable back in the 80s. And my dad, as many of you know, was a pastor. And so that also meant growing up in Sunday school and youth group and knowing all the right um, Sunday school answers. And from time to time, I would attempt to rebel against my parents, but I usually failed miserably because I would always get caught. So I was bad at being a rebel. And I remember at that time thinking that to be a Christian meant that you went to church as I did, did your best to try and be good when you could, in hopes that one day you might be able to make it to heaven. So while I was in Haiti, um, our Haitian guide was giving us a tour of the capital city, Port-au-Prince. And I remember um, we were looking at something and he was talking about the location that we were at, and I was standing in the back of the group um, listening to him. And then I remember out of the corner of my eye seeing something move. And I turned my head towards that movement, and I almost cried out in horror. It's difficult for me to describe, because what I saw did not look human. It was a woman, and her face was completely disfigured, like she'd been burned in fire. You couldn't make out any of the features of her face, except for this little small hole, which was her mouth. But most of her face was this horrible, disfigured scar. And I'd never seen anyone in my 16-year-old life at that time so monstrous-looking. She was covered in dirt, and her clothes were rags. And she was moving towards me. And I remember her hands were outstretched to me. And in fear, I froze. And then I did something that I regretted for the rest of my life. I ran. And my memory is kind of fuzzy. Like, I don't remember where the group was in that moment or what was happening. But I remember running away from her. And when I finally stopped, my heart was just pounding, was beating a mile a minute. And then I heard this voice say to me, Christine, that was me. You left back there. I mean, it's ironic, isn't it, that I went to Haiti thinking that I was going to serve God. And yet when God came to me in the form of this woman, I ran away. And I remember breaking down and and crying in that moment, kind of like Peter after the cock crowed for the third time. And I remember that moment changed the trajectory of my life. And it was as if in those few seconds, it was as if I'd been asleep that whole time and suddenly I woke up and the world looked entirely different. Mark Labberton in his book, The Dangerous Act of Worship, writes, Jesus, if anything, was and is awake. That's the shock for those who encounter him in the Gospels. He came to make a world of those who are awake, awake to God, awake to each other, and awake to the world. Waking up is the dangerous act of worship. It's dangerous because worship is meant to produce lives fully attentive to the reality as God sees it. And that's more than most of us want to deal with. Living lives fully attentive to the reality as God sees it may be more than what most of us want to deal with. And yet deep down, I believe that that's what most of us want. We don't want to be asleep. We don't want to be self-absorbed. We don't want to remain in this small, cramped, four-walled room of our own tiny little existence, but rather to step out into the rich and expansive reality of the world that God lives in. I think deep down, we want to be awake with our eyes wide open to something deeper and stronger and more loving and more courageous, more like God. And that's what our scripture readings today call us to, to awaken to the God we worship and what this God is like and the kind of worship that he desires. So the prophet Isaiah has a lot to say about the kind of worship that honors God. So God had had set apart Israel to be his chosen people, to worship him only, and in so doing to be a light for the nations. But time and time again, Israel would confuse the forms of worship with the true heart of worship. So God says in Isaiah 29, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Isaiah 1, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and of the fat of fattened animals. And then in Isaiah 58, the bill read for us today, is this the fast that I have chosen only a day for a man to humble himself for bowing one's head like a reed and lying on sackcloth and ashes? I mean, if Isaiah was speaking to us today, he might say, is this the worship that I've chosen to come to church on a Sunday morning and sing hymns and pray prayers and and receive the Eucharist? And so what he tells them is he says, this is what it means to worship. This is the fasting I've chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. It's Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked, to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. What he's saying is that true worship, it changes you. It changes how you see things. It changes your practices. It changes how you move around in this world, the kind of presence that you bring into the world. In worship, in other words, you become what you behold. And what we behold in worship is a God who says, that was me that you left back there. That was me. You know, a God who so identifies with the least and the lost and the forgotten and the rejected and the despised. And to worship this God, Isaiah says, is not ultimately about the forms or the music or the sacrifices, but having a heart that is so transformed by the love of God that it cannot stay away from the places and the people that need that love the most. You know, the Anglican bishop and New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, he writes, In the book of Revelation and Genesis, we see that the purpose of the human race is to be God's image bearers, reflecting God's image into the rest of the world. And in Christ, this is at last achieved. This is indeed the very heart of worship that we should gaze in love and gratitude at our creator and redeemer and so be restored as genuine human beings and thereby be agents of God for the healing of creation. When I was doing a campus ministry um, back in the late 90s at the University of Chicago, I spent a summer in the Lawndale neighborhood of Chicago, and it was a community that just over generations had been decimated by gang violence and by drugs and poverty. And I remember that summer, there was a funeral every single week that I was there. And during my first week, a four-year-old girl was shot and killed When she got caught in gang crossfire, and a gang member grabbed her to use her as a human shield. In the midst of that violence and despair was Lawndale Community Church. And I remember one day, the folks from Lawndale Community Church, they invited our group to a prayer walk. Now, I don't know if you've ever done a prayer walk before, but my experience of prayer walks was that, you know, you go out in twos and threes, and you quietly pray around the neighborhood. At Lawndale, they did things a little differently. At Lawndale, there was a police escort, and they had bullhorns. And this group of Christians started singing and praying through the streets at the top of their lungs, and they would stop, and they would pray for people as they walked along. And then things got a little bit more intense when we walked up to storefronts where they knew the drugs were being sold. And the prayer leader would go right up to the store owner and stick the bullhorn in his face and say, We know you're selling drugs in there, and we're not going to take it anymore. We're going to get you shut down. And they would chant things like, Up with hope, down with dope. And that was their worship. You know, their worship was declaring that Jesus is Lord, not the gangs or the drugs or the despair, but that Jesus is Lord over that community, that he loves them and cares and he's right there. Because they did not only just pray and sing and and shout in the streets, they ran a medical center to provide high-quality medical care at low cost. They had a drug rehabilitation center called the Hope House where men could come and receive support They had a tutoring program and a computer center and housing development and all of this to say that while the government and the city may have forgotten you, God has not forgotten you. God sees you. And the worship I remember at Lawndale, it would just blow the roof off the church. I remember Lamond, one of the men from Hope House, just singing with tears streaming down his face, you are the God of second chances. And they worshiped God. They experienced the love of God for themselves and consequently God's love for their neighbors. And that drove them to these radical acts of love and kindness in their community. And those acts of love were their worship to God, which then pointed others to this God that they worshipped. Who then, they came to know this God personally. And so on and so forth in this beautiful and virtuous cycle. So what does that mean for us this morning? You know, my guess is that there isn't anyone who disagrees with what I'm saying. Like, the job of the preacher is actually not to tell you something that you've never heard before, but to remind you of what you already know. And what Jesus says is that you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And it's not this moralistic thing where we have to try harder. Not, you should be the salt of the earth, you should be the light of the world, but you are You are these things. And that is what the children of God are, just by virtue of being the children of God. What does salt do? In ancient times, salt was used to prevent decay, there wasn't any refrigeration. And so they used salt to keep food from decaying. What does light do? It illuminates the darkness. If a room is pitch black and you light just one small match, no matter how enormous that room is, the light overcomes the darkness. Now, let's not kid ourselves. Things are bad. There is darkness and decay all around us. And fear and hatred permeate the atmosphere in our country. And so here's a question for you this morning. Are you adding to the decay and the darkness with fear and hatred in your heart? Or are you combating it as light and salt? Because according to Isaiah and Jesus, we can do all the right things, do all the forms of good, however you define that, whether that's coming to church or marching in the streets, and yet your heart still be gripped by fear and hatred for your enemies, as Dr. King famously said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Well, you know what? That's really easy to say and post on your Facebook page, and it's really hard to do, really hard to do, impossible, in fact. And Isaiah reminds us this morning that God loves the prisoner, the hungry, the poor, the naked. And when we love the way that God loves, that light pours forth from us. But we can't love like that if hatred and fear permeate our hearts. We can't do it in our own strength. In a few few moments, we're going to celebrate the Eucharist. And in the Eucharist, what we're doing is we are remembering the one who was bound so that we could be set free. The one who hungered and thirsted that we might be filled. The one who Paul says that though he was rich became poor for our sakes. Who hung naked on the cross so that we might be clothed with his righteousness. Who loved his enemies and said, Father forgive them even as they were killing him. He fell asleep in death so that we who were asleep might be awakened to God and to each other and to the world that that God loves. His life was extinguished in darkness that we might be filled with his light to be light in a world engulfed in darkness. I want to be awake to that God as my defining reality, not our president, not our politicians, not the hopelessness and fear and hatred, But God is my defining reality. And I think that in your heart, you do too. And So in the Eucharist, when we come, we come as a symbol of our hands stretched out like this. Like the woman who came with her hands stretched out to me saying, God, I need you. God, we need you. God, help me. Help us. I can't transform my own heart. I can't love like you love. But Jesus, you have already done that transforming work on the cross. You've already taken the hatred and the fear of the world onto yourself. And you've taken my fear and my hatred. So do that transforming work in me so that I can love like you do. Whether it's the poor and the oppressed. Whether it's the people that I hate who are harming them. And we pray with St. Francis who prayed that prayer. Lord to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.